it is kind of the perfect storm. I mean, really, if somebody were to have created, and I do not believe that that is the case, to be clear, I do believe that this is an organically um, mutating virus, but right. had someone bioengineered the perfect pandemic virus, it would have looked a lot like this. We would have had asymptomatic mm-hmm. carriers that were spreading virus and respiratory droplets that are persistent in the environment for one to three days <laughs> that that are because they're asymptomatic, they're literally going about their daily life and having no idea as to how much they're spreading this virus. We would have, this is exactly what we would have created is something that looked a lot like this. And so I think that that is a big part of why we've responded in the way that we have. Um, another difference with a, with stuff like Zika and chikungunya and dengue is that this one is not transmitted by a mosquito. So this one is not one that's dependent upon the right climate and the right environment in order to be spread. You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. By now, you probably recognize the voice of Dr. Audrey Rupel, Assistant Professor of One Health Epidemiology at Purdue. You just heard Audrey talking about the perfect storm that is COVID-19, if it can be described that way. This is a virus that is spread from human to human and can be transmitted through the air, in which it lingers for a substantial amount of time where viruses are concerned. In the previous episode, we spoke to Audrey and other experts about the novel coronavirus itself, looking at some of its characteristics, and putting it into historical and statistical context. One common sentiment has emerged in our conversations up to this point of the series. COVID-19 is scary. In part, it is so scary because it spreads very quickly. In today's episode, we will be discussing how healthcare facilities were forced to react to the outbreak, what changes they needed to make, how their day-to-day operations, procedures, and routines were affected, how access to healthcare has affected different communities and populations, and what this means for the future of healthcare. Looking back just a couple of months ago, we all remember the unsettling images of hospitals in New York City, Seattle, Italy, and many other places around the world being overrun with COVID-19 patients. Bodies, some no longer living, lined hallways, occupied beds and ventilators, and were so much the focal point of healthcare facilities that other diseased and injured bodies were not going to the hospital or being admitted. Beyond the generally disturbing fatal potential of COVID-19, Where healthcare was concerned, this sudden storm of virus patients not only made hospitals hotspots for the spread of the disease, and a place that was suddenly much less safe for healthcare workers on the front lines of treating the pandemic, but it also had economic ramifications for the business of healthcare. In episode two, we introduced you to Dr. David Bernard, who is an attending physician in pediatric emergency medicine at Children's of Alabama. Here's Dr. Dave again, describing what this sudden shift was like from the perspective of a frontline healthcare worker broadly speaking, and how the understandable desire among some patients to avoid going to the hospital, even when they had a serious need to seek health care, resulted in more severe harm to their bodies. So I think the best word 
is surreal. It was an absolute surreal experience. Uh, I think as a healthcare provider, once this hit, every time you walked into that arena, you walk with the knowledge that the doctor and other healthcare providers that described this illness died from the illness. And we were looking at the data of healthcare providers becoming sick in Northern Italy and other countries. And so it was surreal. We were all terrified and I would say scared to death when we first started. And so that's, that's how we started. And then the other surreal aspect is all your other business went away. So when things shut down, people were terrified to uh, come to the hospital. So all the things you take for granted of bumps and bruises and all these, you quit seeing those patients. Our volume went down. We were much, much less busy. But the people that did come to the hospital were quite, quite ill, oftentimes delayed. So, you know, I'm sorry you have a tummy ache, but I'm not about to take you to the hospital because I'm scared to death. And then three days later, your appendix is ruptured and you're much sicker. And so we saw lots of people with complex illness from the delay in care. The take-home word, I think, is surreal. Absolutely surreal. As you heard David telling us, there was, during the initial phase of the outbreak and subsequent economic shutdowns, a very real effect on those who were sick, but not necessarily with the coronavirus. They were often faced with one of the dilemmas we have been discussing thus far, another theme of the series. In this dilemma, the decision people were faced with was between going to the hospital to seek appropriate health care, thereby putting themselves at risk of exposure to the virus, or staying home and dealing with their symptoms to avoid exposure to the virus, thereby putting themselves at risk for greater injury. When we interviewed Dr. Amy Martin, another voice you'll probably recognize to this point, back in May, I jokingly asked her if it was safe for me to go to the ER if I accidentally broke my arm or something of a sort. In truth, this was something I had pondered during the stay-at-home phase here in Indiana. And in parts of the country that are just now seeing peak cases, this is a question that many people may be pondering themselves in the coming weeks. Amy assured me, in fact she insisted, that if I were to accidentally break my arm, that I should indeed go to the hospital and ought to feel safe doing so. You might recall that in the previous episode, Amy told us that hospitals are the best place to be when we are sick, and that they follow hygiene practices of the highest order. Another insight Amy offered is that it is precisely these procedures, say if I broke a bone and needed to have surgery, on which hospitals make their money. This necessary revenue stream then makes it possible for the hospital to pay its bills, to stay open, and to treat patients like the tens and hundreds of thousands of people worldwide that have required treatment in a hospital due to COVID-19. Hospitals run on the income made by elective procedures. Um, And so that income is important to hospitals. So getting elective procedures up and going makes us able to do the things that we do otherwise, care for critically ill people, deal with trauma patients, so we, we have to think about that as part of, part of our calculus, too. And um, it's, not, it's not the driver, but it's an important component to it. If you're anything like me, and most of your experience with hospitals comes from simply being a patient or visitor, then you might also have been unaware that most of a hospital's income comes from elective procedures, like Amy just told us. Upon hearing what Amy had to say about this, we began to have many questions about how hospitals were going to be able to operate without these procedures during the COVID-19 pandemic. How would they make the switch to only treating acutely ill patients? 
How would they be able to afford the necessary equipment and pay their staff without the income from elective procedures? How would they begin to allocate their resources in order to treat as many people as possible? With all these questions and more in mind, we turn back to Dr. David Bernard to inquire about his own personal experience at Children's of Alabama Birmingham as they began to alter their daily operations to fit the needs of a community in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Dave clued us in on both how the hospital began to prepare for the changes in caregiving practices that they would need to implement and the learning curve that came with these changes. He also emphasizes that these changes are necessary during the COVID-19 pandemic, not only to provide the best care possible for the health and safety of the patients, but also for the safety of the staff as they continue to treat and heal as many patients as possible. Let's take a listen to Dr. Dave on hospital preparation at the start of the pandemic. As this pandemic emerged, hospitals, I think, quickly recognized seeing what was happening in Italy and other countries is that our systems could be overwhelmed very, very quickly. And so every hospital system, as you know, effectively shut down to prepare for COVID. So anything that wasn't taking care of acutely ill patients was effectively shut down and sent home for you know the first couple months of COVID care. Uh, as a emergency provider, pediatric emergency provider, we of course did not. We geared up to take care of these patients began practicing, so performing a tremendous number of simulations to learn how to effectively take care of these patients while maintaining the safety of yourself and the staff around you. One of the reasons we were so interested to talk with Dr. Dave is the fact that he is an emergency physician. As you have probably noted, he is in pediatric emergency medicine. We'll talk to David about emergency health care and pediatric medicine during the pandemic in a bit, but for now, we wanted to highlight the massive and immediate shift of hospital systems worldwide to being focused primarily, if not entirely, on COVID-19 treatment. No doubt this is another, to borrow his term from earlier in the episode, surreal aspect of the outbreak where healthcare providers and hospitals were concerned. I can only imagine what that looks like. Hospitals that were being overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients and actively and intentionally turning away non-acute cases. To be clear, David is not nor am I, saying that there was someone standing at the doors of the hospital turning away the sick and injured. But I wanted to stretch that image to highlight yet again the decision-making process and ethical dilemmas at play here. The ethics of these decision-making processes is front and center where hospitals were called upon to decide whether or not to pursue elective surgeries that could have long-term health benefits for patients and potentially prolong their lives. We'll return to that topic momentarily. But first, here is Amy again, addressing the fact that during the height of the outbreak and the overwhelming of hospitals, people were, sadly, and even tragically, not visiting the ER for necessary emergency procedures. To put this question into context, I had asked Amy specifically if there was any data from March and April that would suggest that deaths from certain non-coronavirus conditions or injuries had increased. Here's her answer. I don't think we have any data on it because this would probably be the only data set that we could really pull from um, is this time. But if I were a betting person, I would say, yeah, this is going to affect it Um, just because people aren't accessing the care that is, that is generally accessible to them or they're not going for the diagnostic test or they're not showing up to, you know, they have chest pain and they're not going to the ER because they're afraid, Mm. afraid to go to the emergency department um, or they just wait a little bit longer than they normally would because 
they know that the emergency department is already very full. As has been discussed in previous episodes, it's no secret that this pandemic has led most, if not all people, to ponder perplexing questions and make difficult decisions. As we just heard Amy talk about, one of these difficult decisions to make is whether or not to seek treatment at a hospital during the time of COVID-19. As hard as I'm sure it is to make a healthy and ethical decision about receiving care during this pandemic, I can only imagine how hard it is to make a healthy and ethical decision about how and when to provide treatment during the pandemic. After speaking with doctors and healthcare providers about COVID-19 in general, it has become increasingly clear that while they would like to provide care to anyone and everyone, the limited space and resources they currently have make this ideal goal incredibly unlikely, if not impossible. How then can hospitals ethically decide how best to allocate their staff and resources to help and save as many people as possible during these unprecedented and difficult times? Furthering our conversation about the difficulties of deciding when to receive care from the last clip, we slightly shift gears to talk about the difficulties of providing care during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's Amy Martin again. And the ethical framework really comes from the ability to treat people that really need it kind of first and foremost, right? So reducing pain and suffering and simultaneously long-term outcomes. So people that if not treated soon will kind of suffer the greatest uh, effects of not being treated soon. And then on top of that, looking at what our resources are in terms of things like personal protective equipment, um, personnel, space, time, um, because we don't, we don't go 100% right away. So thinking about those things with the idea that we could get another surge in, in patients with coronavirus or lack resources pretty quickly uh, will kind of give that ethical framework to how we do this. Um, but I, I don't think there's any ramifications of not doing I think that that's just the we want to do things the most ethical way, um, Mm -hmm. such that we create good outcomes for people, and especially people that need those right now. Amy mentions the surges that we were experiencing when we spoke to her in early May, and that, as we have mentioned, certain parts of the country are just now experiencing. And we know that there is potential for more peaks, surges, and waves in the coming months, and likely even over the next year or two, and perhaps until we develop a vaccine or develop global community immunity, if that's possible. One of the underlying terms in the episode thus far is preparation. The pressure put on hospitals to shift their treatment and daily operations was mitigated by the preparedness of our healthcare facilities and professionals to respond to such a crisis. Hospital systems have such emergency preparedness plans. Perhaps one positive outcome of the past couple of months, if it's even correct to suggest one, is that it has given our hospitals a chance to enact these preparedness plans, and thereby to detect where improvements can be made, where efficiencies can be increased, and what protocols can be added or amended for future similar situations. Here, Dr. David Bernard discusses the protocols that his hospital had in place, including whether or not his pediatric CR was asked to or preparing to be shifted strictly to COVID-19 treatment. That was discussed, and so we are in the same medical school, the same university as a large adult emergency department. So the University of Alabama and Birmingham's emergency department is just down the street from us. And so they started getting overwhelmed pretty quickly. 
And so one of the differences between pediatrics and adult care is just the sheer numbers of positives and the sheer number of complications. Children are much less likely to develop critical illness than adults, particularly older adults with other complicated medical problems. And so adult emergency departments quickly became overwhelmed. And so our emergency medicine colleagues asked us as part of their planning early on if we would be willing to help them out if the situation came that they were having to activate more advanced uh, levels of their surge planning. And so our group volunteered, had volunteered to train and go work in their surge tents, which was the plan. And really two good things happened, one of them very personal for me. The one that was good for everyone is that the though they became very busy as of yet, the surge in Birmingham and surrounding counties was not sufficient to overwhelm the capacity and resources of the functioning emergency department. So they did not have to move uh, as of yet to their advanced stages where they set up a tent in the parking lot, as you saw in New York. And so that was great. But the other personal thing that happened is they decided that no one over the age of 55 could work in their surge uh, disaster unit uh, because older people are higher risk. So they kicked my butt out anyway, <laughs> so, which, which, which I had not taken care of adult patients in 25 plus years. So uh, I was, must say, I was somewhat anxious about taking that step, but it was the right thing to do for our colleagues and fortunately didn't have to do that. As we just heard Dr. Dave mention, one big difference between practicing adult medicine and pediatric medicine is the number of patients seeking treatment. After hearing about how this specific difference in types of medical care led to different types of practices and collaborations between emergency departments, we became increasingly interested about other differences between medical care for adults and pediatrics, especially during the time of COVID-19. In this next clip, Dr. Dave continues to elaborate on being a pediatric emergency care provider during the pandemic and how treating children, rather than adults, can pose different potential risks and challenges. He also sheds some light on how it is that most cases of COVID-19 in children are detected, as well as an emerging trend in children in particular with COVID-19, developing a rare and potentially serious illness called multi-system inflammatory syndrome-C. It seems to me as though typically we only hear about how dangerous COVID-19 has been for older people. But here, as Dr. Dave points out, while most children probably will not need to go on a ventilator to recover from COVID-19, the virus can still be very dangerous and serious for them. Now, I'll turn it over to Dr. David Bernard, continuing to tell us about the somewhat uncommon narrative surrounding children and COVID-19. As you've probably heard, wearing personal protective equipment constantly is very, very uncomfortable and really interferes with your ability to communicate when you have a mask over your face and particularly the early designs for the N95 respirators were very uncomfortable and so you know the question was can I practice safely with some patients with less personal protective equipment you know can I be safe and you know I think what we find in pediatrics is that you have to assume everyone has COVID and practice that way and which is kind of uh disconcerting, particularly for pediatricians, because as pediatricians, we provoke what we call aerosolizing procedures. So you've probably heard people talk about, well, the biggest risk is when someone's doing a procedure that causes aerosolization of the virus, that effectively spews the virus into the air. 
and mm-hmm. so you know the the act of putting a breathing tube, what we call intubation, is you know that procedure and probably the way many many healthcare providers that have gotten infected got infected. Um, and so yes, you can plan for that, and we it took weeks for us to really really uh, come up with our plans for how we were going to most safely perform that procedure in children. Uh, but you know when I look in the screaming kids' ears, that kid's aerosolizing constantly. You know so. You know, my typical stuff as a pediatrician, there's a six-month-old with a fever. I'm going to look at his ears, you know, so I'm putting my face and head right next to him, and he's screaming. And mm. so, I mean, that kid's showering virus into the air. So all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my gosh. You know, I just did what I did as a pediatrician. I looked in the kid's ears, and did I put myself at risk? Did I put my, did I put the nurse in the room at risk? But now this kid's screaming. So, uh, so how you approach patients knowing that any one of them, regardless of what they're there for, could be COVID positive. It's really been one of the scariest things for us. Most patients with COVID who've come to pediatric facilities, ours in particular, are not there because of fever, cough, and shortness of breath. They're there for other reasons. When it is diagnosed, the overwhelming majority of them are not critically ill. We've had a few critically ill children that have required advanced life support, but the overwhelming majority have not and then you are probably familiar with that as as the numbers of patients with COVID increased in, uh, across the country and we got into May, then this description of kind of this rare syndrome of diffuse body inflammation, what they call multi-system inflammatory syndrome, dash C for COVID, uh, that is similar to some other rare illnesses we have, started being reported in children with COVID, sometimes long after their diagnosis of COVID relatively rare, but potentially very serious illness, and emphasizing the fact that, yes, children are less likely to get critically ill and need a respirator uh, compared to older adults, particularly with other medical conditions. As Dr. Dave pointed out in that clip that you just heard, the way that COVID-19 seems to manifest in children can be very different from the ways that it manifests in adults. That being said, This does not mean that the virus is not dangerous for children as well. In this next clip, he continues the comparison of COVID-19 in adults and children, but shifts gears slightly to talk about both positive and negative aspects of one main difference. The way that COVID-19 presents itself in children is often not immediately recognizable as COVID-19. In attempting to best understand what COVID-19 is and how it is affecting the healthcare system in this country, we must first try and understand how it affects all people, not just one specific population. Here's Dr. Dave telling us more about why this occurrence is scary and at the same time can provide some sense of hope. Well, it was a big surprise to everyone. 70% of the patients at Children's Hospital diagnosed with COVID who came to the emergency department, 70% of them were there for reasons not related to COVID. They were there for Mm. broken bones, trauma, tummy aches, things that were not traditionally thought to be COVID, psychiatric reasons. So children's ads did most hospitals instituted a a universal screening for everyone that was admitted to the hospital, which tested for COVID. Really was a really important thing to be able to start successfully performing surgeries again, figuring out how to safely isolate these patients within the hospital. And what we found, you know, our experience is that most of the children with COVID don't act like they have COVID uh, and aren't there for COVID. So that's 
good and bad. It's good from the perspective that it emphasizes that the overwhelming majority of children with COVID are not going to become critically ill. So that's the good thing from a community societal perspective. The bad thing from a healthcare provider perspective is we have to treat every patient like they have COVID. In the second segment of the show, we turn the conversation to how different populations and demographics in the United States have been affected by the novel coronavirus pandemic. Inevitably, this discussion highlights the racial inequities and socioeconomic disparities that both a put certain populations, particularly black and brown Americans, at higher risk of having pre-existing conditions that are comorbidities with the coronavirus, but also putting them at higher risk of contracting COVID-19 itself, and B, that are emblematic of deeper inequities and disparities in terms of access to healthcare. Though our hospitals and the millions of healthcare professionals around the world that were called to action at the beginning of the outbreak had preparedness plans, we discussed in episode two that to one very reasonable way of looking at it, some of our governments, not so much. You might recall that we spoke with Audrey Rupel in the last episode about why the response to COVID-19 on a federal level here in the U.S. seems so woefully unprepared. We also asked her why, despite this being caught inexcusably unawares, our government seemed to respond to the COVID-19 crisis in a way to which previous public health crises, both past and present, had not been. Her answer is direct. We need look no further than the people being affected in the initial phases, at least according to the early available data, and the countries that were initially reporting outbreaks. This is going to sound kind of cynical, and it might actually be a little bit cynical, but what we're seeing is we're seeing a virus that is spreading in rich, white nations, and it is impacting elderly. In other words, the types of people that are typically making the rules and making the decisions that impact most of us. Most of the viruses that we've seen that have gone globally are affecting poorer um, browner areas of the world, so people with darker mm. skin. And so here we've got a virus that is spread in the world's wealthiest nations very, very rapidly, showing a really high death rate um, it, amongst populations that are not typically affected by these types of viruses. But I think it's important to note that we still have um, countries in, the, in this world that are battling rabies, like dog-associated rabies deaths in children. That are, this is an, an ongoing issue, but we don't see them, and so therefore we don't respond to them. We're not helping to eradicate. Rabies is a perfect example, and the reason I bring it up is because it's one we have a vaccine for. It's an effective vaccine. We could eradicate this disease, but because the wealthy nations of the world aren't faced with it, we're not funding it. And yet it's a, it's a disease that we could totally eradicate. So I think that there is that piece, which I know that it sounds cynical, but I think it's actually just more realistic. We're responding the way that we're responding to COVID because it's affecting people that have the power to make this kind of response. I think the last point that Audrey makes there is an incredibly powerful yet saddening one. At the start of this pandemic, regardless of things like where in the world you live or what news network you like to watch, COVID-19 was on everyone's mind 
and a part of everyone's nightly dinner conversation. But how many outbreaks, natural disasters, and other crises are we missing because they aren't happening directly in our own communities? This really got us thinking about how a global pandemic like COVID-19 has really shed light on all different kinds of communities that need better access to resources and care, and the responsibility that we have to try and ameliorate these situations for all different types of communities when and where we are able. Generally speaking, one type of community that has been particularly hit hard by the effects of COVID-19 are rural communities. However, before we can dive into the specific challenges that rural communities have faced during this pandemic, we first have to look at how healthcare in general has been changing in these rural communities leading up to the pandemic itself. Here's Amy Martin discussing how issues with rural healthcare access and supplies in general have worsened the effects of COVID-19 on small rural communities. Let's start with the rural healthcare situation. A couple of things have happened in rural healthcare um, pre-corona, pre-COVID times, which is the fact that uh, hospitals in small towns are closing. Mm. So the ability to access hospital-level care is becoming more and more difficult. Um, and these access, these criti- what we call critical access hospitals um, that are kind of small feeder hospitals into larger hospitals that are the big tertiary acute care centers um, are becoming fewer and fewer. And so to access hospital level care, driving 30 and 40 miles to get there um, for some people is almost it can be impossible yeah. um, in some ways, and that will determine outcomes in a in a huge way, um, especially right now. And also noting that in these rural communities, what we're seeing at this point is where where these hotspots are. For instance, a good example would be you know the Tyson factory or the pork factory in South Dakota. Is uh, when these hotspots become hotspots hotspots, the need for care is um, huge in numbers, right? So 300 people in a small town needing care at one time is, there won't be any access because if, let's say that, you know, they've gotten corona and they need um, access to ventilators and that hospital has zero ventilators or potentially two ventilators and 50 people need them out of the 500 that have gotten sick, what then? Um, the, the benefit with that is, you know, being able to potentially transfer to the large acute care hospital, but there might not be time for that. Um, people show, uh, unfortunately, what we're seeing in this disease process is people are trying to stay home and then by the time they need um, the hospital level support, uh, they're not, they kind of don't make it in time because they are, trying to avoid the hospital appropriately. Um, But simultaneously, if you and your family all have gotten sick at the same time and you potentially all need to go to the hospital, you can't show up at the the critical access hospital and all need ventilators. Um, So that that is one problem. And I think that unfortunately at this point in time, we're going in the wrong, wrong direction with numbers of those to begin with. While Amy focused mostly in the last clip, on aspects of the healthcare system and healthcare access in rural communities that have worsened the effects of COVID-19 for those areas. Caitlin Fenley, a graduate student studying history here at Purdue, looks at another aspect of life in rural communities that could also worsen the effects of COVID-19. 
when stay-at-home orders were put into effect, businesses that provided essentials like food to the public, in this case, grocery stores and restaurants, began offering more delivery options for groceries and meals. In the case of restaurants, this allowed for those restaurants who otherwise would not be able to conduct any business, stay open and keep their employees working as long as possible. In the case of grocery stores, it made it so that people who were more at risk for catching COVID-19 or developing more serious complications from it to stay out of public spaces as much as possible. The problem, as Caitlin mentions in this next clip, is that many of these small rural communities do not have the means, whether it be because of lack of funds, lack of workers, or the distance between destinations, to offer these services to their communities. Because of this, people in rural communities are more likely to risk exposure to the virus when obtaining some essential needs like food. I do know that once diseases hit rural areas, there's obviously a lot less access to the healthcare resources needed. Hospitals, in terms of coronavirus, there's testing sites or um, even just having access to, say, grocery delivery or things that would help prevent you from having to go out unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot more distance between those essential things that you need and um, your home. So I think in terms of that, there's definitely some disparities there. Indeed, one's address is determinant in one's access to health care and, unfortunately, can also be determinant in one's state of health, both physiological and mental. Dr. Amy Martin spoke with us about social determinants, the statistical likelihood for someone to contract the novel coronavirus, and also what the outcome of contracting it will be. To be sure, these social determinants tell us a story that goes well beyond COVID-19, offering disheartening statistics about the likelihood of certain populations to have pre-existing conditions, which as we mentioned earlier are comorbidities to COVID-19, and to suffer fatally from certain diseases. One factor in this, if not the key factor, is race. Hopefully, most, if not all, of our listeners will not be surprised to hear that black Americans suffer from certain pre-existing conditions and certain illnesses at a statistical level that outnumbers white Americans by several factors. Audrey Ruppel was, in my opinion at least, absolutely correct in her speculation that the early effects COVID-19 had and its potential to have on older, richer, Western, white populations was a fundamental aspect of our global response. Sadly, it stands to reason that if these demographics, by and large, make up the governmental representative bodies in Western nations, then those governmental bodies would have been compelled, for better or worse, to act accordingly. But as the weeks and months go by, and as we accumulate more data, and more to the point, as many states start to collect and aggregate certain data points, one picture becomes more and more clear particularly in the U.S. Black Americans are affected very differently than white Americans by poor access to health care, pre-existing conditions, and COVID-19. What we're seeing is this is where the social determinants of health are really identifying how wellness care is affecting how people, what their outcomes are in, at this point in time, right? Um, so we see that the African-American population is being more affected by coronavirus. And that being said, their access to healthcare, especially in urban places, is is much worse. Um, So they already have disease processes or comorbidities that are, are causing their outcomes to be much worse. And so unfortunately, what we're seeing is that public health on the front end of a pandemic is what is what has failed us. And hopefully that will be a lesson learned here. Um, we talk a lot about when we're thinking 
in terms of how we allocate resources, if we had to allocate resources, what that would look like, and always thinking about how to make sure access is equal to all persons that show up, you know, making sure that there's no discriminating factors, but the disease is just is discriminating because of health status that is discriminating mm. because of social determinants of health that have been in play for years and years and years in this country. This is really detrimental to the outcomes of, of people. So hopefully that'll be a lesson learned. This general inadequacy of our healthcare system to treat and improve the lives of all people in the United States and across the world will be revisited at the end of the episode. As mentioned, it was definitely one of the sub-threads that emerged from our conversations with many of our guests. In our next episode, we will return to our typical interview format and be joined by Dr. Faith Day from Purdue. Dr. Day is the Assistant Director of COVID Black. In that interview, we will take a longer, more focused look at how COVID-19 affects black and brown Americans. But we include some of these discussions we had with other guests here because it is impossible to separate and frankly, it would be intellectually disingenuous to try to separate these discussions from our other interviews and other topics of discussion around public health and access to health care. We also spoke with Caitlin Fenley about race and COVID-19 and how the current pandemic points to the racial inequity in our health care systems. Here's Caitlin again. Really just thinking about prior to the coronavirus, who are the people who are going to be um, more susceptible to it? And then on top of that, just having less access to medical care as well. And often those neighborhoods are further away from medical resources, sort of things that are important for this. So I think, yeah, I definitely think that's an issue that's coming up a lot more as well. Just thinking about how the environment and um, race can also affect public health and how you really have to address those racial issues as well if you want to improve health outcomes for people during the pandemic. So I think the coronavirus is just really exposing the public health care system and how inadequate it is for a lot of people and how people are being affected differently. The alarming reality of COVID-19's effect on communities of color only points to the fact that these racial inequities were already present in our health care systems and our policies around public health. Neighborhood or geographical area, race, age, gender identity, just to name a few, all of these are among the components in the intersectionality that both determines people's likely health outcomes and vulnerabilities, but also that is at the heart of necessary research and discussions to improve health care for everyone, particularly communities of color. To take a look at one aspect of this intersectionality in health outcomes, a topic of conversation that we will revisit with Faith Day next week, we asked Caitlin how environmental factors and race intersect where public health is concerned. The statistical facticity here is frustrating and truly saddening. Just thinking about um, where people live and how that can affect their health, Black Americans and other um, communities of color are more likely to live near pollution sites or industrial sites there's, you know, issues of fracking and that sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. more likely to be occurring near those neighborhoods. And you do see it with the health statistics. So people who live in these neighborhoods or areas are more likely to have asthma or lung conditions. And as you said, we do know that that can um, affect your um, outcomes for coronavirus. 
As you heard from the last few clips from Caitlin and Amy, pre-existing racial disparities, especially in the public health care system, have exacerbated the negative effects of COVID-19 for many communities across the country and across the world. Shifting gears slightly, but also continuing this conversation of racial disparities in the time of a pandemic, Caitlin discusses the xenophobic response from many Americans about COVID-19. She explains to us that when an outbreak in the 19th century that originated in China eventually traveled to San Francisco, Americans began blaming Asians and Asian Americans, leading to severe racial disparities and great strife for members of the Chinese community in San Francisco. Caitlin warns us that these xenophobic and hateful responses to a pandemic are nothing but harmful and do nothing but get in the way of getting communities healthy and making actual positive changes to the public health care system. At a time when we should all be lifting one another up and working to make the world a safe and healthy place, the last thing we should be doing is blaming one group of people and engaging in hateful and racist behavior like calling COVID-19 the China virus. Here's Caitlin with more. We know there are these xenophobic responses to coronavirus as well. Um, And we do see that with other pandemics too, calling it things like the China virus and that sort of thing, trying to blame Asian Americans or people of Asian descent on the disease because of where it came from um, and that sort of thing. There was a third plague pandemic which originated in China in the mid-19th century and it ended up spreading to the United States by the beginning of the 20th century, mainly contained in San Francisco. Um, And there was a Chinatown there where there was, you know, a history of public health issues, higher rates of disease there. People generally just sort of stayed away from that area because they didn't think it was clean. So a lot of issues were already there. And then when the plague finally came to the United States, people immediately jumped at the Chinese residents there and said, well, you know, this is their fault, look at how they live, and immediately focused on them as the people to blame, rather than, you know, trying to think of broader public health responses that would benefit them and would benefit everybody else. So I think you sort of see that now, trying to blame people um, racially for the disease and how it's being spread rather than trying to take a more, I guess, general approach and, um, you know, think of why, I guess, in the case of certain communities, why they're being affected more rather than blaming people or Mm -hmm. saying it's their fault, trying to figure out what can be done to remove that disparity. So far in today's episode, our guests have spoken about how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the day-to-day operations in hospitals, how the healthcare system itself has changed in response to the pandemic, and how race, locality, and socioeconomic status greatly impact a community's ability to respond to the pandemic. In this final segment of today's episode, we'll listen to a couple of clips that focus specifically on the ways to change the healthcare system in this country and how healthcare might look moving forward. To start this segment off, we'll hear again from Amy Martin, telling us how it isn't only better actual care that can improve the healthcare system, 
but taking preventative measures like better health education and better access to proper food and nourishment for all people can actually help us be better prepared for any similar possible future pandemic. She emphasizes that it is not just the measures that we take during the pandemic, but the measures that we take before something like this even occurs. They can have a significant impact on keeping people safe and healthy. We want healthcare to be accessible to all people in a way that it benefits their outcomes long term if something like this were to happen again, that they don't show up with the disease processes that could have been prevented by wellness care and access to healthy foods and education and all these other things that go along with it. While in the previous clip, Amy focused on healthcare measures that should have been taken long before a pandemic like COVID-19 occurred, in this next and final clip of today's episode, Tom Doyle talks about how the pandemic could further these discussions on healthcare reform that took place before the pandemic. Tom discusses how this pandemic has led the general public to become aware of significant disparities in access to healthcare in the United States, and, as terrible as the COVID-19 pandemic has been, perhaps it can provide a platform to bring about tangible change to our healthcare system and possibly even lead the way to providing healthcare to all people. In a time of great uncertainty and anxiety, it brings me a sense of hope that there could possibly be positive change and reevaluation on the horizon. Now, let's hear what Tom has to say. The difference that we're going to see is we're going to see a world much more engaged in talking about health in a different way. Uh, definitely with the discussions, I mean, we had the, the political discussions prior to COVID-19 talked a lot about healthcare reform and the concept of healthcare for all. But I think that COVID is definitely going to open the doors to the discussion that we all have vulnerable bodies. Tragedy can strike at any time due to our vulnerabilities. And that being the case, there needs to be some social reform or some social change that makes everybody have an equal playing field as far as far as health goes or access to health care. I think that's that's probably the next kind of social movement um, that's going to arise out of COVID is just thinking about how can we change the world to make access to healthcare more equal and more fair for individuals. Think of this last segment of today's show as a sort of coda. As we said, the discussion around the inadequacy of our healthcare systems to properly care for everyone was a constant and passionate subthread throughout many of our discussions. Though we only share two excerpts here, it seemed only right to end today's episode on this note. When we were mapping out the series, we discussed asking questions about, and dedicating an episode to, how hospitals and healthcare providers responded to healthcare. A necessary aspect of this conversation is how the people that need healthcare are able to access it, and what pre-existing conditions they may be suffering from, conditions that can make them more vulnerable to, and more likely to suffer a fatal case of COVID-19. Caroline and I want to give a genuine and heartfelt thank you and to recognize the healthcare workers around the world that put their own lives at risk to care for those suffering from COVID-19. They are heroes in our eyes, and we hope that listeners feel the same way. But we also wanted to make clear that systemically, our healthcare system simply does not treat everyone equally, and it is not equally accessible to all of us. As we mentioned, we'll be back next week with our full interview with Dr. Faith Day, the Assistant Director of COVID Black, a task force on black health and data, in which we'll further explore some of the topics discussed in these latter two segments of today's episode. In the meantime, we appreciate your listening, remind everyone to stay diligent in terms of physical distancing and wearing face coverings, and generally just want to say that we extend love and hope that this finds you all and your families and loved ones healthy and safe. Thank you.
The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.